The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakened world. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Everybody and happy March the 4th, if you're listening live. March 4th, it's one of my favorite holidays. It's the day that we're all told to march forth into what's ahead and what's coming next with this year. So may you march forth into everything that you want to do and be and achieve and aspire to. And we have a great show today. We've got creativity. We've got a little controversy. And we have a co-host, and that would be the lovely Danielle Legg. Hey, Danielle. Hello. How are you? I'm fabulous. Uh, Danielle, as some of you know, uh, helps out here at Main Street vegan oh my gosh she's more than helps out she would be my right hand if my right hand didn't work (laughs) she's fabulous (laughs) she's amazing um very very dedicated vegan she also um works with dan and annie shannon uh, meet the shannons betty goes vegan she's done a lot with our hen house she's done some work over at vote couture you know i was hanging out with the vote couture people yesterday yeah, doing the, what were you filming? I was filming. Yeah, what we were doing was the enhanced ebook or the deluxe ebook for my new book, The Good Karma Diet. So a deluxe ebook is audio and video along with the book, which is very cool. So if you're thinking of getting yourself an electronic copy of The Good Karma Diet, oh, spring for the, the enhanced edition, the deluxe edition, because then in addition to me talking and smiling and things, um, there'll be uh, Leanne uh, Hilgard of Avoque Couture, Joshua Catcher, a menswear designer and blogger at The Discerning Brute, and also Sarah Gross, who was part of putting on the New York City Vegetarian Food Festival, coming up in the middle of March right here in New York City. She's also the founder of Rescue Chocolate. So do check all that stuff out. And without further ado... Danielle and I will introduce our first guest, Glenn Mercer. You want to do the honors, Danielle? I would love to. Glenn Mercer has been a vegetarian for 42 years and a vegan for the last 22. He's co-author with Howard Lyman of Mad Cowboy and No More Bull, with a chef edge of Unprocessed, and with Pam Popper of Food Over Medicine, and with Chef Del Sruf of Better Than Vegan. He's editor of the Happy Cow Cookbook and is most recently author of Off the Reservation, a novel about a vegan congressman's quest for the presidency, featuring 20 story-related vegan recipes, which are delicious, by Joanna 
Samaro Merzer. And they are delicious. And the book is delightful. This is a page turner. It's been out for a couple of months. And if you haven't already read it, get yourself a copy of Off the Reservation, a novel. It's a novel and it's got food in it and it's got a vegan in it. It's so cool. Hey, Glenn, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Well, it's wonderful, wonderful to have you. Your novel is getting so much buzz. Where did the idea come from? I think I first got the idea when I was watching uh, Barack Obama run for president in 2008, and I was a supporter of his. Uh, But when he would say, yes, we can, I started wondering, what would happen if there were a candidate for president who actually said, well, no, we can't, a candidate who, who sometimes was skeptical uh, and and approached every issue uh, very analytically and honestly. Uh, that was my first idea, and then I realized, well, if 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 I create a, a character who's always saying no, we can't, that would be that would be uh, not very inspiring. So I, I uh, hedged on that, and I came up with a candidate who simply addresses every issue with utmost honesty uh, and talks about what may or may not be possible on uh, regarding every issue that's facing the country. And he, he goes vegan in the book, so you follow his process. He, 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 not, he not only goes vegan, he and his family are already vegan mm-hmm. uh, from the time uh, the book starts. Um, and that's because if you're going to honestly address the issues facing the country, there is no honest solution to our environmental crisis or to uh, climate change except a vegan diet. So it's, in, it's impossible to really be an honest candidate who's trying to address those issues unless you're vegan. Well, tell us your story, Glenn. How did you become vegan? Uh, I first became vegetarian when I was 17. Uh, there were a lot of there was a lot of heart disease in my family. I had never met my grandparents, and my uh, t- my mother's two bro- brothers, two uncles, died of heart attacks when they were in their 40s or 50s. Most of the men on both sides of my family died in their 50s of heart disease. So I didn't particularly want to be middle aged at 25, uh, and it wasn't very hard to figure out what the problem was. The problem was meat. So I gave up meat uh, when I was 17. I decided to give it up the first day of my summer vacation after my junior year in high school. So I got up in the morning, and I had an English muffin for for breakfast with jam. And and the phone rang. It was an old buddy of mine, Dave. And I said, hey, Dave, congratulate me. I became a vegetarian. And he said, hey, that's great. Since when? And I said, well, you, you know, since breakfast. And he laughed at me. And it's a very good thing that he laughed at me because I haven't had meat since. That's a great story. That's awesome. And then where did the vegan come in? Well, I was unfortunately, foolishly, only a vegetarian for the first 20, 22 years of that diet. And I, uh, as I learned more and read more books and also started to feel some strange pains in my chest, nothing very... You know, nothing close to a heart attack, I don't think, but it was like an electrical shock I would sometimes feel in my chest. I realized cheese is just liquid meat. I mean, the reason from a health perspective, there are many reasons to be a vegan, but from a health perspective, meat is too much saturated fat, too much cholesterol, no fiber, uh, too much unhelpful animal protein. Well, cheese is too much saturated fat, too much cholesterol, no fiber, too much unhelpful animal protein. It's the same thing. It's just in a different form. So I was making myself sick by eating cheese because some people had scared me that I had to eat some dairy for protein. Uh, So I felt much better as soon as I gave up the cheese. Cool. Glad you have. So now you're saying we've taken you from vegetarian to vegan, and in the talking points here, you say why being vegan isn't good enough. What does that mean? Well, because you could be vegan on on beer and potato chips. <laughs> you know, I, I did the book um, um, 
Better Than Vegan with Del Shroff, Chef Del. And, of course, it's more his book than mine. He's the chef, and it's a cookbook. But I uh, helped write his story. Uh, and Del was a 465-pound vegan. Uh, it's possible to do that if you're eating, you know, too many fat, too much, eating things like margarine, too much oil, fried food, potato chips. It's perfectly possible to be a very unhealthy, obese vegan. Uh, the correct the diet that human beings were meant to eat is a whole food, plant-based diet. So it's eating grains and legumes and, and vegetables and fruits. It's it's not eating uh, you know fried nuggets or whatever fried uh, even if they're soy nuggets. Uh, so um, uh, it's important to you know all of us who are vegan for different reasons. Some of some people go vegan for the environment. Some go vegan because of their concern for animals, and some do it for health. But all of us should try to do it in as healthy a way as possible to set a good example for everyone else. And if you're a 400-pound vegan, you're not setting the best example. Well, the congressman uh, in Off the Reservation is a healthy eating vegan, and these recipes yes. from your wife, as Danielle was, was praising earlier, these are some darn good recipes. I would love to see an entire cookbook from your wife. Are these just things she cooks around the house? She is a great chef, and yes, she cooks these meals and many other wonderful meals, uh, and I am encouraging her to do a cookbook, so I, I think she will. Uh, and um, she's also uh, gone macrobiotic. Now, there are people on the macrobiotic diet who eat fish. Joanna is a vegan macrobiotic. But there's a lot to be said about uh, for macrobiotic cooking, a lot of root vegetables, a lot of brown rice. That's my favorite food. So uh, we have a lot of uh, macrobiotic-inspired meals. The one thing I don't quite understand about the macrobiotic rules is why they seem to have uh, some bias against what they call... Um, uh, nightshade vegetables. I don't understand that, so I don't. I don't obey that rule. I, think um, I have nothing against <laughs> potatoes. I'm a spud biotic. <laughs> I like that. That's very good. Well, since we're talking about people in your family, tell us about your 95 year old vegan mother who takes no medications. Yeah, my mother. Uh, when I became Vegetarian at 17, my mother was in her uh, mid-50s, and she was already having heart pain. She was having angina attacks, severe attacks, when she would just walk up the stairs. So I told her, Mama, I'm giving up meat. You should give it up, too. And uh, she, uh, she pretty much did. She wasn't strictly vegetarian, but she cut way, she gave up red meat, and she cut way back on any other kind of flesh food. Um, and then maybe 15 years later when she retired to Florida, that's, that's the law in New York. Um, when you hit 70, you retire to Florida. So she retired to Florida. I'll put that on the calendar. Then, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, she, she went even more vegetarian and, uh, you know, she would eat a few things I didn't approve of, like low-fat cottage cheese, but she was getting pretty good with her diet. And then when she was 87, I moved my parents to California so I could be closer to them and help take care of my father who had Parkinson's. And so I did all their grocery shopping. So my mother became a vegan at 87. Ah. And when she arrived in California, she was still on about six medications, uh, still on a statin drug and a blood pressure medication, a few different medications. And after six years of eating vegan, the doctor, not me, the doctor took her off all her meds. Oh, so uh, when she uh, recently had to go uh, to the emergency room because she had a, a, a urinary tract infection, they asked her for her medication. She said, I don't take any. And they assumed she had Alzheimer's. <laughs> oh, but no, she doesn't take any meds. Wow, that that is a great story, and that we live in a culture where if someone is at advanced stage without taking meds, then there must be something wrong with their memory. Yeah. Whoa. 
you got to tell that one far and wide, Glenn. That's that's big. So the book is off the reservation. It's a novel. It's a culinary novel. It refers to some dishes, and there are recipes for those dishes in the back, and they are just super, super yummy. Danielle was pointing out her favorite one here. Uh, What's her favorite? What was, one of the desserts. One of the desserts. Here, for oh, because sure. these are in the order in which they appear in the book. It was some kind of chocolate. Chocolate oh, the, date nut balls. Chocolate date nut balls. We're loving the chocolate <laughs> oh, date nut balls. Oh, those are good. Well, I'm more of a sunflower cate person, but they're but they're good. So oh, so treats. get the book off the reservation. Read blogs about the book on the novel's website off the reservation novel dot com, and check out Glenn Mercer's blog Veg Left. And happy reading. This is a great book. I hope everybody in Congress reads it, Glenn. And maybe one of these days, we will just be hailing to the vegan chief. Thanks for all your good work. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. And everybody else, stay with us. After this break, we are going to be bringing on June Stoyer. You know her from The Organic View, and you're going to get be getting her view on all sorts of things right after these messages. Unity Online Radio brings you inspiring programs on a variety of spiritual topics. Giving to the network is now easier than ever. Simply text Unity Radio to 72727 from your smartphone. You can make a one-time or recurring donation. Your gifts help us offer enriching spiritual programs that reach listeners around the world. Text Unity Radio to 72727. Thank you for your support. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. The world is full of voices, advertising, television, politics, colleagues, family, and friends. All are too happy to tell us how to live. In all of that noise, it's easy to miss the one voice that matters, your own soul. What would happen if you could hear that voice? Imagine the clarity, confidence, and courage that would be yours and the life you could create. Join Janet Connor, best-selling author of Writing Down Your Soul, The Lotus and the Lily, and Your Soul Wants Five Things, as she and her guests explore how to hear the call of the soul and create the soul-directed life. Live Thursday at 1 p.m. Central, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Go inside to find. You're listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, everybody. Danielle, you are such a good introducer. Why don't you give a good old intro for our next guest? All right. Next up, we've got June Stoyer. June is a journalist and executive producer of the Organic View Radio Show, an interactive Internet talk radio show on topics of environment, technology, pollinator health, 
horticulture, wellness, wildlife, and clean energy, named by New Hope Media as one of the top shows to follow. Top 10 shows. June grew up on a private organic farm in the Catskill Mountains. Her father's passion for organic farming provided the perfect foundation for which she now thrives as an educator and an activist. She's a certified master composter and master gardener. Amazing. She's a fierce animal rights activist and has helped raise awareness about issues such as the ivory trade, canned hunting, trophy hunting, cetacean captivity, pollinator protection, and adopt over shop, adopt over shop, and more. Bravo for all that. Bravo, I guess we should say. Yeah. When, when it's a female. Hey, June, welcome to the Main Street Vegan Show. 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 Thank you, ladies. This is such a fantastic platform to communicate all sorts of knowledge to your listeners, and I, I'm really grateful for the opportunity, especially to help people understand what's going on with our pollinators and hopefully people will become more aware of what's going on. So thank you for having me on today. We're so glad to have you. First, I'm, I'm actually really excited to learn about pollinators and I just read an article about bees, so I'm excited to get to that. But what I wanted to touch on before we get to that is um, you said that you grew up on an organic farm. I actually grew up on a very small uh, family farm, so I wanted to hear what your childhood was like. Um, my childhood basically consisted of my dad saying, how would you like to have your own pony? And of course, I was horse crazy. I, I think I would have slept in the barn if my parents allowed me to. And so we go move upstate, and all of a sudden, every day, we had different animals that were being delivered. We had no idea how to care for them, what to do with them, so on and so forth. And for the most part, my dad had a lot of allergies, so he wasn't really too interactive. And, I mean, he was hands-on, but my brother and I were primarily his, what I refer to as his, ind- his indentured servants. So every morning we were out there feeding the animals, just doing all sorts of stuff. And it was amazing. Looking back, when I was going through it, I didn't think it was amazing. I thought, oh, my gosh, this is just a lot of work to, to ask a kid to do. And... I actually used to fight with my dad about having to weed his garden. My dad was very much into different environmental issues, and he was a big uh, gardener. His gardens were fantastic, and he did everything organically. But at the time, I didn't understand what organic meant. I viewed Uh the chemicals as something that was beneficial because I didn't want to weed the garden. And I used to say to him, Dad, why do you have to be so cheap? You have so much money. Let's go to Agley, get some chemicals, dump it on the vegetables. <laughs> Who cares? And he used to say to me, well, it's not organic. And I used to tell him, well, I hate organic. You know, organic sucks. <laughs> organic <laughs> so it was a never... Work. Yeah, so it was a never-ending battle. And lo and behold, the first thing that happened when I graduated and I... Went, I lived in, the, in New York City for college, I called him up and I said, Dad, can you bring down some food? And he said to me, and my father knew, he just enjoyed uh, testing me, I guess, and he said, well, don't they have food in the supermarket? And I told him, I said, there's something weird about the eggs. The eggs have this pukey yellow color and the, the yolk should be bright orange. And he said to me, why do you think that is? And I said, I have no idea what they're feeding the chickens, but... Basically, whatever they're feeding the chickens is coming out in the eggs, and I don't want to touch it. And then, little by little, I started growing vegetables in in a container garden on my fire escape, which at the time, Mayor Dinkins was in office, and New York City was kind of um, disheveled. (laughs) Well, it, It was not exactly the shining star that it is today, it was really not in a great place. There's a lot of graffiti. The city was just really a disaster. And lo and behold, I had this little container garden on my fire escape. And by the end of my undergraduate degree, by, by the time that four-year period was up, I had, I had neighbors that were asking me how to grow their own vegetables in a container garden oh, on the fire escape. So you had like this one little block in Brooklyn where you could see all the little container gardens. And I didn't think at the time to take a picture of it because I was just doing what I'd love to do. And anybody that asked me, I was more than happy to show them. But looking back, 
that was really something. And today, what I try to do is I tell people, even if it's just one herb that you grow in your kitchen, grow something. Mm-hmm. It's so important to connect to your food and also to know who's growing your food. That's such a very, very important issue that is not really talked about too much other than on programs such as this where you encourage your listeners to really connect to where their food is coming from, how it's being grown, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So basically that was kind of how it was growing up. It was also kind of difficult for me because I lived in a farm where my friends became dinner, and that was always a very big issue for me, but I did not have the support to basically say, I don't want to eat meat. I don't want any part of this. I was not, I I, I just didn't have the support back then. And I was incredibly sensitive to animals. And it was, it was not an easy journey. Yeah. I I love the childhood stories that when you talked about having to weed the garden, there was a short period when I was a single mom and my daughter Adair was six and seven and we lived in the central Missouri Ozarks and we just had a little cottage. We didn't have a garden, but her best friend who lived 10 miles down the road, uh, they they really (laughs) lived off their garden and she went there uh, one weekend to stay and she always had such a good time there and I said, well, how was it? Did you have fun? And she said, it's fun to go to Edie's house, except we always have to pick dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I remember that. Yeah, farming can be very rewarding, but the thing is, is that it's not easy. And I have, I've heard from so many of my listeners that have said, oh, you know, you're so lucky. I want to have an organic farm. Or I'm thinking about starting an organic farm and blah, blah, blah. And you don't have vacations. You don't have time to sit in a spa and get a manicure, pedicure, and watch the paint dry. There's no such thing. It's 24-7, nonstop. You can't tell the animals, well, I don't feel like getting up to feed you. It's your responsibility, and it's something that you really want to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and uh, I suppose a, a nice veganic farm where you don't have to deal yeah. with animals other than the ones you have rescued and love. Right, that require you still to wait yeah. at a certain time. Every this morning. is true. So, so June, how did you get from there, from the fire escape to vegan? Oh boy, that's a whole story. But I guess that's Tell why us I'm on today. Version. It was <laughs> it was quite interesting. I was, as I said, I was sensitive, but I didn't really know how to express myself, and I didn't really know much about anything to do with a vegan diet. I didn't even know that you could omit meat from your diet. I, the, the school system really does a great job of pushing that whole pyramid on you about how you need to eat the four food groups and... That couldn't be the furthest from the truth. And when I was in college, one of my friends was studying. She wanted to become a veterinarian, and she was the first one. She taught me about um, just what animals go through in order for the manufacturers of fur coats to produce these coats. And at the time, I was wearing fur and leather, and when she told me about it, I was horrified. So that was kind of my first big step forward. And then she got me involved with what PETA does and some of the other local organizations that promote adoption over buying a dog or or a pedigree cat. And it, it continued that journey forward. And the interesting thing is I had tried to eliminate meat from my diet maybe about 15 years ago, and I didn't really know what I was doing. I knew that eating meat was something that I didn't want to do because I felt that I didn't want to have animals suffer because of my choices, but in the same token, I didn't have a lot of information, and I guess it wasn't the time. Then what had happened was I actually consumed organic free-range chicken, And I got very, very sick. It felt as though there was a knife that was just scraping my intestines. And I just couldn't eat chicken. And I thought to myself, wow, if this is organic, free-range chicken, 
And I did it twice just to make sure that it wasn't just some bug or something. I thought to myself, what's going into these animals that I don't know? Because basically you are what you eat. And then something amazing happened. I decided to take up beekeeping, which is something that I had wanted to do for quite a long time. And one of the pro- one of the or part of the process when you become a new hobbyist beekeeper is when you do your installation of the hive, you're supposed to go out there and let the bees get to know you. And you're not supposed to wear any type of perfume any type of hair gel, anything like that, basically you have to go au natural, so to speak, so that they can pick up your scent and understand and recognize you. So I did that, and then I'm sitting out there, and I have all these honeybees that are landing on my legs, on my arms. They're all over the place, and it dawned on me that they're watching me. They recognize me. They know who I am. I'm... I'm, I must be something like a Godzilla to them, but they are a family that is trying to get to know me. And that was the moment that compassion kicked in. And I've never been the same since. So it's, it's quite interesting when people tell me about how they've tried to go vegan, this and that. And I really try my best not to judge their process because I think for everybody, it is a journey. Some people are down the path, and if you discourage them, they may not make it to the compassionate component of that journey, which is really important. Some people become vegan because of health reasons, but that compassion factor, to me, is what really seals the deal. And so once I recognized that these honeybees knew who I was, I've never been the same since, and... I tell people about this, and I tell them, you know, when you're out in nature, whether you're taking photographs of flowers or you're just walking in the woods, there's life around you, and that life has every right to be there just as much as you do. So it's something that people really need to start thinking about more, and I don't think that it's a widely accepted belief because our society really does push this belief system where human beings have domination over other beings. And when you look at the resurgence of fur and fashion, uh, there's so many different things that are going on in society that have made us take steps backwards. I think it's horrible, but the thing is, is that we have to have compassion. Instead of getting angry and using negativity, we have to be compassionate because there are kids that aren't even born yet that are going to come into this world that are going to inherit everything that we're giving to them, and they're going to be the ones dealing with this. And it's not fair to them to just say, okay, I hate all human beings, which I've had my moments where for periods of time I've said, you know what, I hate people, people suck, you know, this is never going to change, this and that. But fortunately I've had great mentors that have said to me, you can't be like that because negativity begets negativity. Right. The only right. thing that can defeat negativity is when you express love. And for people that want to take that and misconstrue what I'm saying, uh, which there's always going to be somebody, it's, it's, not, it, it's not what people think. It, it's basically having a disposition where you're positive and you're emitting positive energy so that you're helping to... I guess, re-elevate the consciousness of those around you. And I think when you're a positive person and you do make a a diligent effort to elevate the consciousness, it is infectious, and other people do pay attention. So I think that's really important, and that's something that I try to do. I I, I don't push my philosophies on anybody because I feel that it's kind of like trying to make somebody do something that they don't want to do. If they're not ready, it doesn't matter what you say to them, doesn't matter what you do, they have to want to do it. It has to be right. free will. Well, I love something so, they say in the 12-step programs, which is attraction rather than promotion. Because if you have something that somebody else wants, if your life is working, if you're healthier than people in your family, whatever it is, mm-hmm. then people are going to be looking at, you know, what's she doing? What's she thinking? What's she eating? How's she living? Right. 
So kind of along what you're saying, too, and I think lots of vegans probably have have had similar struggles. Is it hard for you to be around people who are omnivores? So maybe someone wearing a fur trim on transit or eating with friends maybe who are not vegan. It's a journey. I will say that much. Um, I am, uh, it's something that I struggle with. For example, Mm -hmm. I attended an event that honored Aaron Stevens, who's the founder of Nature's Path. And there was a gal that came to this event who sat in front of me, and she had a full-length fur coat, and she plopped it down on the chair in front of me. And I was next. a friend of mine was sitting next to me, and she's just dying to know what my reaction is going to be. And I did something that I shouldn't have done. I kicked the chair, which <gasps> I really shouldn't have done. And then I stopped myself and I said, who am I to judge her? This woman is here at an event honoring a man who is conscious, who is present, who gets it, and maybe this is part of her journey. Who am I to interfere with that process? After all, if somebody interfered with my process, I might not be here as well. So I came to that conclusion that I really need to do what I can to be, I guess, more accepting of other people's journeys and other people's Mm -hmm. processes. So that was the decision that I made at that point. When I'm out to dinner, going out to dinner is just miserable. It doesn't matter how you slice it or dice it. And if I'm out with someone and they order a steak, it... It makes me sick to my stomach, but in some social circles, when you're out, whether it's an industry event or something, and people are eating meat, it's it's hard, especially if it's a dinner event. I try my best to just focus on what I'm doing, and actually what I do is, before I eat, I close my eyes and I say a prayer for all the animals that were slaughtered to feed the people that are around me. And that's basically what I do to kind of deal with it. But people that I go out with, uh, socially, what have you, even my family, they're they're becoming more sensitive to what my needs are. And I just, I I tend to just, as I said, I I just kind of zone out and focus on, you know, what's in front of me and just kind of put blinders on, so to speak. It, it's just not very easy. I don't know how some people deal with it, but it's something that I continue to deal with. And um, it's, I, I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer for that. And yet you reach so many people and inspire them to be compassionate. I know that, that your radio show has a huge following. You have a huge following online. Uh, so do check out theorganicview.com, and the the is there in it, theorganicview.com, um, to find out more about that and learn more about June. She is all over Twitter. She's just like my Twitter mentor. <laughs> I just think you do everything right over there on social media. And I know from all that that one of your great passions, and it's so interesting to me that you believe you were open to compassion for other creatures more than you had been previously by bees, and the bees are in trouble, and this is a big, big uh, interest of yours. So tell us what bees do for all of us, uh, and then what's going on? Why are they in trouble? Well... All pollinators play their part as far as the environment, whether it's a lot of people will say, oh, I don't like bees because they think that a bee is a yellow jacket, uh, which is actually part of the wasp family. Bees are actually, uh, they don't eat other insects. Honey, or excuse me, honeybees do not eat other insects, whereas a wasp will eat a honeybee. So technically speaking, you know, honeybees basically forage and when i hear people say oh i i i hate bees this and that i think it's primarily because they don't understand what their role is and with beekeepers this has been a very big issue i've had a number of comments from listeners especially vegan followers that say well i don't i don't support the beekeeping community beekeepers are bad people this and that Not all beekeepers are bad people. There are a lot of beekeepers that 
are very protective of their bees. They have made a lot of sacrifices to keep their beekeeping operations going, and they also spend a lot of time educating other people about their importance. Personally, what I tell people is to get to know your local beekeeper, their practices. There are a lot of women beekeepers. It's amazing. And these folks are really quite compassionate. Not all beekeepers take all the honey. Uh, just There's so many different stories out there that are circulating. There are some amazing beekeepers that truly do care, and they go above and beyond to do what they can to protect the bees that they do have. Unfortunately, what's happening is the bees, as well as other pollinators, birds, amphibians, there's so many different species that are affected by something called neonicotinoids, which are systemic pesticides. They are basically a new class of insecticides that share a common mode of action, which affect the central nervous system of the insects, basically resulting in paralysis and death. And the thing is, is that the sublethal effects are what is more disturbing. These chemicals are mobile in groundwater. They, in some cases, the half-life of the chemicals could be up to 19 years. So that's a very long time. And the impact of these chemicals is cumulative in nature, and the damage is irreversible. There was one... Research or one study that was done that focused on the dose-time ratio. So basically, uh-huh. once a certain dose was reached, that was it. Death was imminent. So the bottom line is, is that the honeybees, as well as other pollinators, they're the indicator species. And basically what that means is when they're dying in very large numbers, that's an indication that we have some major environmental issues that are going on that need to be addressed and need to be addressed now. And the problem is that there are so many genetically modified crops that are being deregulated. In Obama's last term, four GMO crops were deregulated. And the reason that GMOs are such a big issue is because the GMO technology is the companion technology to neonicotinoids. So basically, when you have a genetically modified seed, it's then treated with the systemic pesticide, these systemic pesticides, and you don't get one without the other. So when it comes to GMOs, they are clearly an enemy of the honeybee. And without our honeybees, there's so many different foods that we would not have, such as blueberries, almonds, pumpkins. Uh, there's so many different foods out there. So when people say, oh, I don't support beekeepers, this and that, I tell them, look at where your food is coming from. If these folks don't do what they're doing, they're at least fighting to protect the honeybees, which is more than most people are doing. And furthermore, I just would like to caution your listeners that these chemicals are in garden products. They're also in pet products. the the flea medication, and so if it's affecting a honeybee, think about what it's doing to your dog or cat. That's tremendous. Uh And there is a lot of speculation out there that there's not enough research. That's a bunch of baloney. There's plenty of research, and it's rock solid. The bottom line is these chemicals make big ag millions of dollars, and if the money factor weren't there, we wouldn't be having this discussion. But unfortunately, it is a huge, huge moneymaker. By design, and I say this all the time, neonicotinoids by design were created to kill insects. So for industry to say that they're not responsible for what's going on with our pollinators is preposterous. There was a recent study by Dr. Vera Krischik at the University of Minnesota She did uh, uh, some research on the monarch butterfly as well as, I think, painted ladies. And from what I understood, it affected the larva, just killed it. And I'm pretty sure that that research is available at the University of Minnesota's website, um, or you can just Google the the study. But it really is bringing things together full circle. But the bottom line is, is that these 
pesticides must be banned, as well as GMOs. Having, having labeling is it, it, it's a great idea, but it's not going to stop it. We need an outright ban on both neonicotinoids and GMOs if we're going to continue to have a healthy environment. Because without healthy soil, you're not going to be able to grow anything. But unfortunately, what's going on is with the GMOs, the farmers are kind of stuck. Once they buy into this technology, it's not like you can just leave. It's it's a very, very dirty business. And there are so many different lawsuits that are going on. Uh, For example, if your listeners want to check out a gentleman named Jim Garrison. He's the president of an organization called Ascada. It's the Organic Seed Trade Growers Association. He's been trying to sue Monsanto just to protect his organic property, his farm, and oh, right, he's been yeah. unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. So it's a very big issue, and it's something that people can do something about. It's something that we can educate each other about. It's something that you can make choices with as far as which food you buy, as far as um, also what you grow, and who you source your food from. I think it's ridiculous that in this country we grow the best citrus, but yet we still import citrus from other countries because of the price. It's ridiculous. If you have the best, why would you want something inferior? Just because it's cheaper? Your health should be paramount. So I I think that that's kind of a common, I think, struggle that a lot of people have. And it's definitely a reason why I think a lot of people say that, you know, they're too afraid to go vegan or not to go vegan. Well, people say they're afraid to go vegan, but that organic is more expensive. And realistically, when you look at the cost of, say, organic bananas versus regular bananas, the actual cost difference is maybe 20 cents. Um, and I think when people learn more about the difference between organic and the GMO products, when they can, I think they are leaning more toward organic and learning more about it. I think that it's something that a lot of people don't understand. And I think a lot of people don't understand, I think, the, the dangers there are to the bees because of the pesticides that we're using to try and make more vegetables or more fruit. Well, that's something I'd, I'd like you to um, share with our listeners too, June. I know that for vegans, the whole beekeeping thing, the whole honey thing is very, very controversial. When I became vegan, the vegan society in the UK, the original vegan society, would go back and forth every couple of years on honey's vegan, honey's not vegan. And then finally, in the 1980s, when I was researching my first book, they had determined, just leave it to individual conscience. I understand because our friends on Facebook, whenever we say anything that's inaccurate, they always let us know. So... uh <laughs> I have been told that the vegan society is now saying, no, you know, honey is, is not for vegans. I still think it's, you know, anything is, is anybody's own um, choice. And then the reason for that being, I watched a couple of films, uh, The Disappearance of the Bees and Queen of the Sun, and learned a lot about colony collapse disorder. And what I believe now, and this is just my personal belief, that there are Wonderful beekeepers, these biodynamic beekeepers and other people who love bees and they had an experience with bees, something like you did, and they are there to support bees, not to exploit bees. My understanding is also, and you can correct me if, if I'm wrong, June, that the real what we would call factory farming of bees happens when they're shipped all over to do the pollinating of foods that vegans eat so it's a really tricky issue and i think one that we maybe shouldn't be judging one another about what's your take on all that well commercial migratory beekeepers have to travel with their bees in order to pollinate the different crops that's very true however there's a very big difference in beekeeping Husbandry. There are some beekeepers that, some commercial beekeepers that it's just an operation. It's just a business to them. And then there are other people who love what they do. 
They're very protective of their bees. They nurture their bees. They do everything possible to care for those bees. But also what they're doing is when they're, they're traveling. Granted, I understand everything that's been communicated about the migratory process, but these people basically stay out by themselves in these fields. And it can be very lonely, but they're out there with the bees, and then they basically take the hives and move them from orchard to orchard. So that's so it, something that I think a lot of people don't understand when it comes to the commercial end of it. Well, explain, June, in the old days, like when, you know, I was growing up, bees just pollinated the area that was around where they were. So whether they were wild bees or whether they were honeybees and there was a beekeeper around, they pollinated the area where they were and they weren't being trucked all over. So what's the environmental reason that we can't have almonds and blueberries and whatever without shipping bees? Are there just not enough bees? With the agricultural component you're talking about uh, let me let me just take a uh, let me just pause for a second here um i'd like to encourage you and your listeners to watch a film called more than honey it was produced by a gentleman named marcus Eimhof, who is i do believe he's from germany or switzerland and he's got uh, he has family members that are commercial beekeepers, and granted, some of the parts of the film, uh, they play into what people's fears are about the commercial beekeepers as far as it, it's just a business. However, it does paint the bigger picture of what life will be like if we don't protect our bees. In China, they are hand-pollinating in certain parts of China because it's so toxic. They can't, the bees won't live. And in America, the, the land is so toxic because they're dumping tons and tons of neonicotinoids. Neonicotinoids are not just applied as a seed treatment, but they're also applied as a foliar application. And if you remember what I said earlier in the interview about the sublethal effects, this stuff just doesn't go away. It doesn't dissipate in the sunlight. So if it's in the groundwater and if it's, if it's where the bees are supposed to thrive, it's hard for those bees to survive on their own. So, and for example, actually, uh, last year, there was a situation where massive honeybees were killed because of tank mixing. Basically, tank mixing is when it's a chem- they, they have this chemical cocktail of all sorts of pesticides, and they basically apply it. They mix all these chemicals together, apply it, and if the stuff doesn't blow up beforehand, they just, you know, they consider themselves lucky. I mean, it's, it's really crazy. I did a number of interviews about that last year. But the bottom line is, is that with the different crops that are pollinated, the commercial beekeepers are necessary to pollinate those crops. We just do not have enough bees. And honestly, I don't know if we're going to have enough bees to pollinate the crops that we pollinate all year long. It's getting to the point where so many beekeepers are losing their bees. They're not able to... They're not able to raise new colonies. It, it's just, it's getting so bad. And there's no protection for the beekeepers. Basically, all the protection that exists is for the growers and for for everybody but the beekeepers, which is a shame. It really should be about the bees, but it's not. So to answer your question, the environment is really too toxic at this point. Um the beekeepers are really necessary at this point if we're going to continue to grow so many crops on such a large scale. While there are a couple, well, there are a number of hobbyists that might have a bumper crop of honey and say, oh, well, my bees are fine, this and that. Yeah, that's few and far between. We would not have enough, we would not be able to produce the mass amounts of blueberries, almonds, citrus, all the different foods that we grow here in America, which we also ship overseas, I might add, at the, the scale that we currently produce them at. 
So mm. we need to do as much as possible to protect not only our honeybees, but our pollinators. Mm. This is all so fascinating. We're down to our last minute, June. I can't believe this has gone so fast. Um, the website for, for June and for her wonderful program is theorganicview.com slash about. You can get lots more information that way. And the film that, that she just recommended is More Than Honey. That's one I haven't seen, but I'll absolutely be watching. Be watching. Uh, I know for, for some of you guys listening, you know, the very idea of, of talking about honey, it's a controversial thing. But, you know, let's all just be friends and really get it that we're all here trying to create the most compassionate and sustainable world possible. And um, thank you, June Stoyer. Thank you, Danielle Legg. And uh, everybody else, thank you for listening. Thank you for having an open mind and a loving heart. God bless you guys. Great bunches. And eat your veggies. And thank you for the opportunity. This has been tremendous. I really hope that more people are open to looking at the plate of the honeybee as well as other pollinators and they start educating themselves about the impact of these chemicals and join the fight and get them banned. Get GMOs banned. We're, we're on it. Thank you so much, June Stoyer. Thanks to Jeff and Unity Online Radio. We'll see you all next week. I'll be coming to you from Paris, France. I are you jealous? Take care, everybody. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. Like life, grief is a journey, not a destination. Whether it is loss of life, relationship, security, or simply the process of change, have you given yourself permission to begin your journey of grief? Have you yielded to the gift of grace? Join Reverend Chaz Wesley every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central on a virtual navigation from grief to grace and explore new horizons of empowerment, significance, and support only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. According to an ancient Hindu teaching, if you can only speak the truth and tell no lies for 12 consecutive years, you can attain enlightenment. Resolve to be honest with yourself and others starting today. And after 4,383 days, you just may become enlightened. This meditative moment from Reverend Joan Gattuso and Unity Magazine is brought to you by Unity. is full of voices advertising television politics colleagues family and friends all are too happy to tell us how to live in all of that noise it's easy to miss the one voice that matters your own soul what would happen if you could hear that voice imagine the clarity confidence and courage that would be yours and the life you could create join janet connor best-selling author of writing down your soul The Lotus and the Lily, and Your Soul Wants Five Things, as she and her guests explore how to hear the call of the soul and create the soul-directed life. Live Thursday at 1 p.m. Central, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Go inside to find my God.
Does music open your heart and bring you peace and joy? Experience the sacredness of sound with Ramdesh Kaur as we travel the world of mantra, kundalini yoga, and devotional music. Join us for a journey into spirit, Thursdays at 4 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Spirit Voyage Radio with Ramdesh. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind Body Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 